Happy New Year to you all. Uh, we are, uh, we are, how many of you are still keeping uh, resolutions five days in? Are we doing good? Anybody here worked out every day this year? All right, I see some Carnes, I believe that, probably the Jackson clan, as you could say the same. Um, we, are, uh, we are just so thankful uh, for what God's been doing in 2019, uh, what he did in 2019, and trust that same heart, as we'll see this morning, trust that same heart for 2020. Um, one of the habits we want to weave in at the beginning of a year is to be in his word, to be fellowshipping with him and others in prayer. So we'd encourage you in the back on the Welcome Center table, there's a copy of a 2020 reading and prayer calendar, as many of us are starting over with new reading plans, and we're going to be walking through the book of Matthew up through the end of October, uh, and so we want to do that together, and so grab a copy of that. It's also online in PDF format at the bottom of the, the homepage. Um, anybody here this morning uh, wearing their hair up in a bun? Some of you, not a lot of hair to wear. Shane would be, uh, you just need some hair at all, brother. That's what you need. Uh, no, but we, um, and, and now maybe I don't want to discriminate. Maybe any man buns here today, too. I mean, there's men and women, equal opportunity. Um, we see you there. So uh, there are actually preachers over the course of history, one in particular that I, I've, I've seen, that would say that you are living in sin. And they have a Bible verse to prove it. Now, spoiler, I'm not one of those preachers. I'm actually thinking about growing out a man bun myself. Uh, I've been trying to adapt the, the blue steel look of that guy up here. That's I just saw it and they liked it. Um, all right, so uh, there was a preacher who he had a sermon. He, he named his sermon and he was serious. It was Top Knot Come Down. This was the name of his sermon, and he quoted Jesus in Matthew 24, 17. And I'm, I'm not making this up. This was the verse that he, he quoted to back up his point. He said, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Now, anybody who knows basic English grammar and spelling would know this dude is out to lunch, Right? completely taking it out of context to say what he wanted to say, and even a step back, would say, Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. He's not speaking to our personal grooming habits. And what's important here, and this is a silly, kind of ridiculous example, but the principle is, is, reminds us of how to and how not to study the Word of God. And, and while this is a, a silly version, um, we have seen much more destructive versions um, of taking Scripture out of context. Many of us know in our own nation's history, the Ku Klux Klan did many um, egregious acts, and then they would use Bible verses to back up their hate-filled, horrific murders of other people. Uh, more recently, uh, a church in Topeka, Kansas, Westboro Baptist. Um, actually, if you go to their website, and I can't even tell you the name of their website right now, it wouldn't be appropriate in this setting, a church website. And on there, it says, God loves the world, the greatest lie ever told. And that God doesn't just hate sin, he hates the sinner. And they have picketed and danced on the graves of many people, including soldiers that have fought for our freedom and our country, and they use Bible verses spewing venom in the name of Jesus. This is real. This is today. In today's passage, Satan himself will use the word of God out of context to try to destroy the word of God made flesh, Jesus. Satan's going to remind us how God's word misused can do irreparable damage and destruction, while Jesus will show us today how brilliantly he demonstrates how God's word can be used to give life 
and that the truth is intended to set us free. Amen. And, and so we ask, Father, that we would rightly divide your word today, that you would give me the words to say, to correctly interpret and explain your word, and that you give all of us ears to hear and eyes to see what it is you have from your word to us this morning. Amen. This morning, we're going to walk through the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. This is Matthew chapter 4. We're studying through the book of Matthew. And if you remember Matthew's purpose, Kanye West tells us, it's that Jesus is king, right? That, that's the purpose. That's where I get all my good theology. He came to rescue and rule not just Israel, but the entire world. He is the Messiah come to save us from sin and death. And we saw that in the first couple chapters of Matthew, Jesus is bringing in a new beginning for all of mankind. We saw in Matthew chapter 1 that the genealogy of Jesus, remember that long list of names we couldn't pronounce? And then we saw the birth of Jesus, his story with Joseph and Mary. And both those words, we said, come from the Greek word genesis. We pronounce genesis, which means source or beginning. That Jesus came to be a new hope. Star Wars movie coming out. A new hope, a new beginning and source for all of the world. And so he comes to tell us that. And I love this. In Matthew chapter 3, Ross preached on it last week. There's another creation story that's being told. And I love the way Matthew maps this on to Genesis 1. Remember Genesis 1, what happens? In the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It says the, the world was dark and formless. It was void and with, without form. It was chaotic. And over the next seven days, God brings order into chaos, light into darkness. And what does he say at the end of each day? It was good. God said he saw it was good. Fast forward to Matthew 3. And what happens? Again, we're in a land of darkness and chaos. And here, once again, the Spirit of God descends like a dove, hovering over the waters where Jesus is being baptized. And once again, the word of God speaks from the heavens. And what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And just like when he made the first Adam in his image and says, I, it was very good. He looks at Jesus and he says, it is very, very good. I am pleased with my son. And what happens in Genesis immediately following the creation story? We move to Genesis chapter 3 where we have our temptation narrative, the fall of man, and it is no accident here that Matthew follows up his recreation with Jesus, bringing new beginnings in Matthew 3 to follow us up with a temptation narrative in Matthew chapter 4. But this time, the good news is the second Adam does not fail where the first Adam did fail. This is so cool. And these aren't just random stories Matthew's patchworking together. He's telling us a very intentional story about the new beginning for all of mankind. We think about this, the beginning of 2020, we need a new beginning, and we have it in Jesus. So we're going to look at this story, Matthew chapter 4, it'll be in the ESV. We'll find out that Jesus is Satan-tested, Father-approved. Verse 1, then Jesus was led, some of you got that, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now this is important, God doesn't tempt us. James 1 says this. He says, um, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That's not true. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is not the one tempting Jesus in this passage. Rather, he is leading him into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the tempter, by the devil himself. This word can also, and potentially better be translated, the Greek word here, testing. 
What we're going to see this morning in our text is three tests that Jesus faces and passes. And then we're going to see why this is so important for us to know today that he did pass those tests. So look, let's look at these together. The first test is to doubt your father. Verse 2, it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, they, they, will, they say uh, that, that after you have fasted for that long, if you are starting to feel hunger again, it indicates that you are on the brink of starving to death. And so the Jesus is legitimately hungry here. This is not a hobbit skipping second breakfast, Right? This isn't when your kid comes and complains to you that they're starving because they only got half the Pop-Tart bag. They only got pop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Interestingly, in the Judean wilderness, these stones actually did resemble bread. And you think about Jesus here, I mean, he's probably hallucinating. Is that a, is that a whopper or is that a stone, right? He is hungry. Verse 4, or excuse me, verse 3, look at what Satan says. The tempter said to him, if you are the son of God. Now, if you remember, what were we just told? What was Jesus just told by his father three verses earlier? comes out of the water, and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He just heard the father's word and the father's heart for him. But here's Satan going, really? Did God actually say that? Are you really his son? Does he really approve of you? Are you really on the right course here? And this is Satan up to his Garden of Eden tactics all over again. We saw this in Genesis 3.1. The serpent told the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? Which he didn't, just one tree. He's twisting God's words. He's, he tried to get the first Adam to question God's words. And now again, he tries to get the last Adam to question God's heart and his word toward him. Let's look at Jesus' words. But he answered, it is written, he'll say that three times, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 here. And, and it's, it's just a little teaching moment. When you're reading the Old Testament, a quote, a quote or a word from the Old Testament, read in the New, or, or anywhere, if they're quoting other parts of Scripture, um, would encourage you to go back and read the whole context, like at least that whole chapter, because there's so much richness here. It's usually not just a link to those words, but to a fuller thought and, and a context. Um, so I would encourage you to have a Bible that has these little cross-references. If you've ever seen these little verses in the margin, that's a lot of what they're doing. They're connecting it to a, a parallel subject, or if a, another part of Scripture is quoted, they'll tell you. So in my Bible, as I was reading that, right where Jesus quoted that, you go over to the side, and sure enough, Deuteronomy 8.3. You don't have to be a, a Jewish scholar to, to know these things. And so when you go back here, Matthew's audience would have been tracking with Deuteronomy 8. Just like today, if I gave you a famous quote from American history, if I said four score and 20 years ago, you would instantly, boom, you're back at the Civil War, right? You're there with Lincoln writing the Gettysburg Address, right? And we're in the context of slavery. There's all these things you're filling in by me just saying that one little phrase. So when Jesus makes this quote, they're instantly going back to Deuteronomy 8. And here's what's so cool about what Jesus is quoting here. It's not just a random fortune cookie truth. Deuteronomy chapter 8, in the context, is Israel in the wilderness themselves, 
And here's Moses, what he has to say. Look at these parallels. Verse 2, this is the verse before he quotes. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years, not 40 days, but 40 years for Israel. They're a little bit harder headed than Jesus. In the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you. Do you hear the language? You to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. So just like Jesus, Israel in the wilderness is being led there for what purpose? To be tested. Their character. Do they believe God or not? And then verse 3. He humbled you and let you hunger, just like Jesus, for these 40 days, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, here's the quote, but, by ma- but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so here we see God asking Jesus just like he asked Israel. It's the Aladdin question, as I call it. Do you trust me? Right? He wants to know, will you trust my timing, my way, my provision? Now, there was nothing inherently wrong with Jesus eating bread, right? Or even making stones into bread. There was no no law against that. Jesus isn't gluten-free. That's not the problem here. No, but I can turn the stones into quinoa, right? That's not... (laughs) He says, man shall not live by bread alone. Alone. The, The point, this is a heart attitude. Satan wanted Jesus to question his sonship. He wanted him to question his father's authority and to to distrust, to doubt his father's heart. But Jesus doesn't. He says God will provide in his time and his way. And so we see Jesus pass the first test. He does not doubt his father. Let's look at the second test, which is to test his father. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now the temple overlooked the Kidron Valley. It had been a 200-foot drop. So the only way Jesus is surviving that fall is if, the, if, if there's a miracle there. So th- this would be a legitimate need that, that he would have if he's jumping. And then verse 6, Satan quotes a little scripture himself. Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He c- will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting here Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He says, your father promised that angels would catch you if you'd fall. So make him prove it. He goes, okay, you passed the first test, that you don't doubt your father. And if you don't actually doubt your father, make him put his money where his mouth is. Prove that he's here for you by jumping and making the angels catch you. So he quotes God's word here. But he completely takes it out of context and misapplies what the truth was there. The truth was not, the truth was not manipulate your God by jumping. It was when you fall, if you fall, when you fall, trust that your God is there to catch you. Remember, we can twist the Bible to say anything we want it to say. This is where we get the top-knot condemnation. This is where we get the KKK and the, the Westboro Baptist heresies. This is why Paul tells Timothy we need to learn how to rightly divide the truth. This is also a free commercial break to invite you to our Bible study series starting in February. Check out and sign it up in the back. Da-da-da. Right? All right. Now back to our, back to our program. Uh, verse 7, seriously though, sign up in the back. Um, verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now another important principle of God's word is it will never contradict itself. So if he says yes, he says yes, my angels will be there to rescue you, but never test me. 
you see, Jesus here, again, he quotes Deuteronomy 6. We're back in that same wilderness context. And he says here, it's Deuteronomy 6, 16, where it says, you will not, shall not put the Lord to test as you tested him at Massa. Well, what happened at Massa? This is, this is going back to the story in Exodus 17. The people have just come out, Exodus 15, across the Red Sea. And they, they're out in the desert and there's no water. Now that's a legitimate need, right? You're in the desert and you have no water. They start to grumble, they start to complain and whine, and they say, why can't we just go back to Egypt? It was better back there, at least we had some water. And in verse 7, they say they tested the Lord, how? By saying, is the Lord among us or not? They question God's presence. They question God's provision. You say, you said you love us, but if you're here with us, prove it in our way by giving us water right now. This is like Gideon's fleece, right? Testing the Lord. The, the principle here, though, is do not manipulate your God. Listen, we don't get to tell him, if I do this, then you have to do that. We don't get to set the terms. But don't we often do that? We barter with God, and that's why we often find ourselves mad and discontent. I had a friend years ago totally walk away from the Lord because she said, man, it has been years now, and I've been reading my Bible every day. I've been praying. I've been doing the right things. But my life's not going the way that I want it to go. So God, where are you? Where's your, where, she questioned his presence, questioned, questioned his provision, and walked away from him. And this passage warns us against demanding the spectacular from God to prove his love and his concern for us, as though he did not already demonstrate the most spectacular revealing of his love for us. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us. Here's, here's how he proves it. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What else do we need to know? God has said, he had just said to his son, I approve of you. You, I am well pleased with you. And God has said to us in Christ, there is no condemnation, that we are accepted in the beloved. Do we believe his word in his heart or do we not? Jesus here passes the test. The test to see if he would trust God to provide all of his needs. He did not need to prove it. He did not need to manipulate his God into showing it in his terms. But this is where Israel had colossally failed time and time again. Think about what Israel is going through in their wilderness experience. God had just rescued them as a people from Pharaoh and his army, showing these ten crazy plagues. He parts an entire sea to make a dry path for them. Hello? He guides them with a cloud in the daytime, a pillar of fire at night. He's chucking bread down at them from the heavens. What more do you want? But then they get here and they go, Nah, we don't believe you because we don't think you can actually fill our hydro flask. I'm glad I don't do that. In my life, God has done nothing but show himself faithful. He saved me. He raised me from the dead. He has met every need every single day of my life. And yet I go, nah, not, not tomorrow. Not, not right now. The most powerful being in the universe, I don't think he can help me with this one. Prove it again on my terms. 
Jesus passes the test. He will not test his father. He believes his word. The final test is to reject his father. Uh, Satan says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, these are probably visions as they're in the wilderness, as he looks at the temple and he looks at the mountaintop, because obviously this isn't literal. You can be on the top of the highest mountain peak in the world and not see all of the kingdoms. That's not the point here. Satan, um, he, starts, he started subtle. Remember, he did the same thing with, with Adam. Or he just tries to get him to doubt God's word. He tries to get him to test God's word. But now Satan gets more blatant. He goes for the jugular. He says, forget him. My way is better. In verse 9, he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now this was not an illegitimate offer from Satan. Right now, the kingdoms of the world are under evil. Second Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says he's the God of this age, the God of this world, as evil reigns. But Satan here is offering Jesus a shortcut. He goes, listen, I know where this is going, but I can give you a way around the cross. I can, you said you're here to be the king. I can give you all of the kingdoms, all the glory, without any of the pain, without any of the loss, follow my way, it's much better. Just bow the knee. What does Satan in his pride want? Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High. He wants God's throne. But Jesus, once again, he says that Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Once again, back to our wilderness context, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13, just three verses earlier. And this, this uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the most famous prayer of Jewish life, it's called the Shema. And in verse 4 and 5, it's the crux of the prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That God demands and deserves an exclusive wor- worship and allegiance. And isn't this what Jesus said when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? This is what he pointed people to to worship and serve God and God alone. And again, this is where Israel fails over and over again. Remember when they're given the law, their their covenant with God? Here's Moses on the mountain, fires raining down, there's thunder. If you've ever doubted God's presence, here it is. He writes on a tablet with his finger these laws and Moses isn't even all the way back down the mountain. And what are they doing? They're bowing down to a golden calf. Israel's heart, like ours, because I know better than you, I'll worship what I see. But Jesus, the true Israel, he's the only one who will consistently and truly fear God, serve God, and he does so all the way to his greatest act of obedience and trust, dying on the cross. The story concludes, verse 11, then the devil left him. Jesus overcomes temptation. He does not succumb, he wins. And then it says, and behold, angels come here and were, came and were ministering to him. Now the angels come swooping in, some heavenly Gatorade and some bananas to help my brother out. The, remember the angelic help that, Jesus, that Satan referenced back in Psalm, from Psalm 91? It was a promise. God wouldn't let his, his, his obedient one fall. But Jesus refused it on his terms. He received it. He receives this help. On his father's terms. It's so beautiful. So what's the point of this passage? What, what, what do we need to know about this story today? Three things and then we'll be done. First of all, to show us Jesus was faithfully obedient through temptation. 
to show us that Jesus was faithfully obedient through temptation. Remember, it's important that we always ask, what is the author's original meaning? Why did he tell us this story? Otherwise, we start taking things out of context and we start condemning man buns, right? So if we, if we just simply see every Bible story as a direct sort of daily bread, what's my application? Um, what, what, what are the three steps that I need to do to overcome temptation in my own life? It's called a temptation for dummies, which once again, Google Images, there actually is a thing called temptation for dummies. Um, but if that's all we see it as, I think we're missing the main point of why, the primary point of why Matthew's trying to tell, what Matthew's trying to tell us here. And I believe what that is, remember, what, we, what did we say the, the whole point of the book is? That Jesus is the king. That he's the right God, the right man for the job. He's come to rule and rescue. He's come to offer us the right kind of life, the right kind of relationship with God. But here's the deal. If he doesn't have the right life, if he doesn't have a perfect, obedient, trusting life, then he can't offer that to us. He has to be sinless. He has to resist temptation. And I believe that is Matthew's central, is the author's intended meaning, the aim, as we've been saying is this, to show that Jesus had to be sinless, and he was, that he had to resist the temptation the first Adam could not, that we could not, and he overcomes. See, here's the good news. The good news is not, hey, resist Satan in the desert, and you too can be accepted by God forever. You too can be saved. No, that's not the gospel. The good news is that Jesus resisted temptation for us. The good news is that Jesus defeated Satan for us. The good news is that we can rest in his perfect, obedient life. And this is what Hebrews 5 tells us. Even though Jesus, verse 8, was God's son, he never, he, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now this word learned here doesn't mean he got better at obedience. That he was disobedient, but now he's more obedient. This word means he, he proved it. He showed, he revealed his obedience. Therefore, verse 9, in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. So, so what it's saying here is that Jesus proved his perfect trust and obedience to the Father through the wilderness, overcoming temptation, through the cross, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. And in that qualifies himself, makes him the way possible back into right relationship with our God. So I think Matthew's main point, to show us that Jesus did it. He did what we could not. Number two, to remind us that we will face temptation. We will face temptation. Satan did everything he could to distract Jesus, to try to get him off mission, to try to get him to question his father's heart. You don't think he's going to do the same to us? Peter tells us that he will. First, first Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is real. Satan is savage. He takes no prisoners. He's coming after us. Right? Any kids here hearing that are not going to be freaked out to go to bed tonight. <laughs> there's a lion under my bed. No, there's not. Pastor Justin said there is. Um, so what does temptation look like in our lives? What, do, what does this look like? What are Satan's tactics? Well, just like with Jesus, he's going to try to get us to doubt our father's heart, to not trust the relationship that we have with him. And oftentimes we see this manifested in taking good things in the wrong way and in the wrong time. You see, everything that Jesus was offered by Satan was good. It wasn't wrong for him to eat. It wasn't wrong for him to be declared the son of God. It wasn't wrong for him to rule the kingdoms. That's why he came. 
Mm. What was wrong was taking it in his timing, in his way, and, and, and on his terms, not his father's. And this happens to us all the time. There are good things that the Father has for us, but in the right context, and we have to trust his heart. Food is good. Gluttony is evil. Too much food, the wrong kinds of food, the wrong reasons for food, or not eating food. That's where we get... Or or what about sex? Sex in the context of a monogamous relationship, a marriage between a man and a woman, is a good, beautiful gift from God. Almost seven months in, I can say that, hallelujah. But we don't trust God's heart for us, and so we try to take it out of bounds. And we try to we try we take the forbidden fruit because we don't believe that He's actually going to be the one that satisfies us. Even listen, if we're single for the rest of our lives, you don't need sex; you need God. And the same thing with rest. A rest is good, but too much of it, the wrong content, can become laziness, and it can become indulgence and comforts and entertainment. You, you see the pattern that I'm that I'm putting forward here. It's like when your kid comes to you and says that at 9.30 at night that they want to eat the rest of their Christmas candy. You tell them, no. Even though sugar is a good gift from God, praise the Lord for sugar, but not that much and not right before bed. And the question is, does your child trust your heart for them? You're not holding out on them. You actually know the, the damage that it will do to their insides if they eat all of that right before they go to bed and the sanity that you'll lose trying to sleep. God says, I will give you everything you need. You don't have to take. Trust my way and my time. This is all about a relationship with him. And this is what God told both Satan and Adam. I made you beautiful. I made you in my image. I gave you purpose to rule and reign with me. But both Adam and Satan said, no, 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 in their pride, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to serve it serve on my terms. In fact, I want to be God myself. And if we don't see in our own hearts, we don't see the pride that Adam and Satan both demonstrated. If we don't see that at the end of the day, we don't, our flesh will not trust the Father. Our flesh wants to be the God of our own universe. We want to control things. We want it our time, our way, our purpose. If we don't see the depths of the pride of our own heart, we will never cry out to be rescued by Jesus. Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly said in his life, not my will, but yours be done. I trust you. He's the only hope we have for overcoming temptation, which leads us to our third and final point. The reason Matthew tells us this story is to give us the means and the model for overcoming temptation. How do we overcome temptation? On our own, we cannot. Remember, this passage isn't primarily here to tell us how we overcome temptation, but that Jesus did overcome temptation for us. But two, two beautiful truths that we need to know this morning from this incarnational Messiah. As a man, he understands our struggles. As a man, he understands our struggles. And get this from Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This beautiful truth, it tells us that, and how comforting to know that when we hunger for things that we can't have or can't have right now, when we walk through the wilderness, when we are tempted, when we have dry tongues, that we have a God, we have a Savior who knows what it is to hunger, who knows what it is to be tempted, who knows what it is to, to, not, to have to walk by faith 
at when God is going to give him that bread at the end of the 40 days. But not only is he a man who gets it, he's also God. And as God, he's willing and able to help us. Willing and able, and both parts are necessary. Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why can he help us? Because he himself was tempted. If you have a math tutor who doesn't understand math, they're not going to be very helpful. And if you have a temptation tutor who has never been tempted himself, what help can he have to offer us? But this tells us Jesus has walked our road. And listen, what we need is not just show us what to do, Jesus. We actually need a new heart. We need a new life. And this is what we're given in Christ, is a new Satan-resisting heart, a father-trusting heart. And that's what it is that Jesus gives us as we're unified with him. But Matthew doesn't just leave us with, well, trust Jesus when you're tempted, the end. He does actually give us a model here. And Satan, at the cross, Second, or, uh, excuse me, Colossians 2.15 says that, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Satan's been defanged. He has no power. He conquered sin and death at the cross. So whenever we, whenever we encounter Satan and his cohorts, it's never a power struggle. You're not arm wrestling with Satan and just hoping that you're strong enough to overcome him. It's not a power encounter. It's a truth encounter. It's always and only truth versus lies. The only weapon, the only tactic he has left is lying to us. And this is what he does. And I will tell you, he's very effective in doing that. He'll whisper into our ears things like, can you, can you really trust God? Is he really going to provide? Maybe he's holding out on you. Why don't you just forget him and, and go ahead and take that. Go ahead and grab the forbidden fruit. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not bad for you. No one's going to know. In fact, you deserve it. You are the victim in this. Over and over again, we hear these lies and, and we give in to them, unlike Jesus. What was Jesus' defense? What did he show us here? How do you combat lies? With the truth, the word of God. Three times he responds to Satan's temptations with it is written. He doesn't get him in a chokehold. He doesn't try to outwit him. He quotes God's word. Three times he says, it is written. And this is the same thing that we do. We tell Satan, be gone, for it is written. Nothing can separate me from God's love. He will always be for me, not against me. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will never leave me nor forsaken me. He has given me everything I need for life and godliness. He has actually given me exceedingly abundantly beyond anything I could ask or imagine it is written. See, when we wrongly divide the truth, it leads to death and chaos and destruction. That's where we get man buns and top knots being condemned. That's where we get the KKK. That's where we get Westboro Baptist and their evil. But when we rightly divide the truth, that's when we're set free. James 4, 7, submit to God, trust his heart, believe his word for you, resist the devil. And what does it say? He'll flee from you. That's the promise. He cannot overpower you. The word sets you free. Free. And this is, listen, last thing I want to say, this is not just about quoting Bible verses. This is not like spiritual angry birds, and every time you get to the right level, you, if I say the right verse, I'll topple Satan, and we'll advance the next guy. This is not about just quoting scripture. The heart of this is, it's a relationship. Do we trust our Father's heart 
and what he has said is true of us and true of who Jesus is and what he did for us. That's where we find victory. That's where we find freedom. Pray with me. Father God, I know many of my brothers and sisters here this morning find themselves in wilderness experiences, find themselves in legitimately difficult positions. Jesus had gone 40 days without eating. The Israelites were a huge nation that had no access to water in the middle of the desert. The things that my brothers and sisters are experiencing today are not fake. They're real trials. They're real hardships. They're legitimate reasons to doubt. And where there is no room for doubt, there is no room for faith. And so, Father, what I ask is not that we live in this fairy tale land that everything's just hunky-dory, but in the midst of temptation, in the midst of the wilderness, would you give us the grace to trust you more? That we'd lift our eyes off ourselves and see that there was one who came, who walked our road, and who overcame temptation, who never doubted you, who, who never distrusted your heart, and who was faithful through the wilderness, through the cross, and into glory where he beckons us into your throne room. Father, I pray that we would trust this Jesus that overcame for us and gave us his, his temptation-resisting, Father-trusting heart that now beats in our chest. May we become a people as you conform us by your spirit into Jesus' image, a, a group of people that will say no to Satan, that will, when, when we hear those lies whispered, that will immediately recognize them and say, it is written, that's not true. This is what my God says. This is who my God is. And in Jesus, we will find victory and hope. It's in his sin-overcoming, temptation-resisting, victorious name that we pray. Amen.